scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the sons of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of Yahweh and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to Yahweh, What shall I do with his people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the sons of Israel, and because they tested Yahweh by saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we indeed give you thanks that your word does indeed endure forever. And so may this enduring word that is set before us today direct us to Christ our Savior and King. May your spirit help us and may we have greater understanding uh, of this text. May your spirit direct us in the truth and the lives that we are to live to your honor and glory. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. few weeks ago, our family went out to the property of some friends, and we were working on clearing a particular area by a stream where there were quite a few rocks, either laying on the ground or uh, embedded within it. And as we were moving the rocks and then chucking them out of the way or down into the dry stream bed, it was quickly evident that there was a surprising variety of rocks. And we even then took a few of them home since Evangelina Noah had recently studied rock formations in science. And one of the rocks was, well, was somewhat hollow inside because when you'd shake it, you could hear a rattling sound. That was Noah split it open and found a number of pockets that had this brown, somewhat looser gravel in them, but also the beginning of some crystal formations looking somewhat like a geode. Well, truth be told, we probably don't think about rocks very often or very much unless, you know, we're a geologist or something. They serve their purpose, whether of filling a driveway or for skipping on water, etc. But, but in the Bible, there's quite a bit of significant imagery related to rocks, some of which uh, significantly contributes to our doctrine of God. And while we, we'll be touching on some of that today, if a more detailed explanation, exploration of that subject interests you, then I commend to you James Jordan's book, uh, Through New Eyes, Chapter 6, Rocks, Gold, and Gems. And in that vein, perhaps like a gemstone that's rather small but held in high value, so our text this morning, though only seven verses, has a richness for our faith that will become all the more evident as we examine and study it, holding it up to the light as it were, that its brilliance and beauty might shine forth. 
Last week we considered chapter 16 and the provision of the manna, the bread from heaven, and noted that it constituted a test of food. Before that, in the latter part of chapter 15, there was the test, primarily of Moses, that took place at Marah, which involved water. In our text this morning, we encounter another test, this one also involving water, and that in this instance, Yahweh is the one being tested by Israel. Now, we'll unpack that a bit more when we get there in the text, but with a second water-related test and taking into account an overall structure for chapters 14 through 17, then we see there's some correspondence between them. Consider, in chapters 14 and 17, enemies are defeated, Egypt and Amalek, respectively. And then Israel responds to each of these victories with memorials of some sort, whether the memorial of song or memorials at the end of chapter 17. Then there's the water test in chapter 15 at Marah, and now this one in Rephidim, or at Horeb, which places last week's test of food and the provision of the manna and the Sabbath at the center of what we call a chiastic structure. Considering this substructure can be helpful, allowing us uh, to keep our bearings a bit, but also recognizing just the artistry of the arrangement and the text itself. Well, let's begin to make our way through... um, through our passage this morning, beginning with verse 1. And set out all the congregation of the sons of Israel from the wilderness of sin, for setting out upon the mouth of Yahweh. And they encamped in or at Rephidim, but there was no water to drink for the people. Now, a couple of things to note. We, we pick up from the previous location, the wilderness of sin, and the people set out because Yahweh told them to do so. Literally, the, the mouth upon the mouth of Yahweh. And remember... Israel is in boot camp in the wilderness. They're learning to take orders. They're learning to march. And when Yahweh says, get up and go, they do so. And when he says, stop here and camp, they do that too. And so they encamped in or at Rephidim, which means, Rephidim means the plains. So they come to a fairly flat area in the wilderness. But what is the dilemma? What is the problem that they encounter? Well, there's no water for the people to drink. Now, before, at Marah, it was undrinkable, and now there's none. And this is a problem for a couple of million people traveling around in this arid area. But as we just established, who told Israel to set out and subsequently to camp? Yahweh. And what's part of Israel's ongoing testing and training, even as we notice in relation to the manna? If they'll trust Yahweh to provide for them. In verse 2, we have the introduction of a couple of important themes when we read, And the people quarreled, or the people contended with Moses, and they said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? The first theme is quarreling or contending. It's a word that can even have legal or courtroom overtones to it. You know, when we think of quarreling, we probably think of siblings arguing about something. But here it's more nuanced than that, and it's it's certainly more than the murmuring or grumbling we've encountered before. The, The people are contending with Moses. They're bringing their grievance to him. They're establishing their case, as it were. And the give is an imperative. They're commanding Moses to give them water. Now Moses somewhat deflects their claim, asking why they're contending with him, but even more why they're testing Yahweh. And the word for test is the same we encountered in the previous two episodes, and is the, that's the second key theme that's set forth here. So we have quarreling and testing, or we have uh, contending and testing, and putting Yahweh to the test is no small thing. 
is uh, is it something Israel should be doing? Well, no, it's not. You know, in Deuteronomy 6.16, 6, Moses declares to the generation about to enter the promised land, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And what other time does this text significantly appear? Well, in Jesus' response to the second test that he faced. From Matthew 4, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Moses poses this question to the people, and then what happens in verse 3? And thirsted there the people for water, and murmured the people against Moses, and said, Why did you cause me to ascend from Egypt, to cause me to die and my sons and my cattle with thirst? And you can probably hear the difference in the language than what you might be seeing in your Bible, but the text makes use of the third person singular, or the first person uh, singular, as the case may be. And this is a, a bit odd because it's the people who are, are speaking, but the use of the singular conveys that this is, this is kind of personal. And perhaps what this is conveying even is that the individual Israelites were coming up to Moses and complaining directly to him and making this, these, these accusations directly to him. And that, and the way they're conveying is that he's done this deliberately and that he's responsible for their plight. You know, why did you bring me out here and cause me to die of thirst? What about my babies? What about my cattle? You know, what kind of monster are you to kill us like this? What kind of leader are you? Don't you care? So you get the idea. And the people are once again demonstrating a childish, immature response. Of course, Mary, uh, Moses bears the brunt of their murmuring, of their grumbling. And this murmuring grumbling is the same word that's used in chapters 15 and 16. Uh, but he bears the brunt of it because, well, he's Yahweh's man. He's the in-the-flesh representative, the boots on the ground, or more properly, the sandals on the ground guy. But the situation certainly, certainly seems uh, more serious than, and it is more serious than at Mara, doesn't it? That matters are escalating based on what we then read in verse 4. And Moses cried out to Yahweh saying, What shall I do for this people? Yet a little while they will stone me. Now, as in chapter 15 and verse 25, Moses cries out to Yahweh. Clearly, there's urgency and he needs to know what to do since they seem to be on the verge of, of stoning him, of killing him. Well, what does stoning indicate in, in Scripture? Well, obviously death, but it also pictures judgment and was a way that executions were carried out. Now, we'll come back to the rock in verse 6, but it's... You know, it's not the only rock in the story, is it? Because here in verse 4, there's the mention of a stone, adding to the rocky theme that's here. And tuck that away for now. Verse 5, And Yahweh said to Moses, Pass over before the face of the people. Take with you from the elders of Israel and your staff, with which you struck the river. Take in your hand and go. Now here in this verse, Yahweh gives Moses three commands. The first is literally, Pass over which is used with some frequency back in chapter 12. The next two commands uh, use the same verb, take. And what is Moses to take? Well, some of the elders. And the staff with which he struck the Nile. 
And then he's to go. He's to walk. And as we'll read in the next verse, he's to walk to a particular rock. Literally, the rock. Now, perhaps we're to get the impression that Moses is reenacting the exodus. That a a mini-exodus is taking place, so to speak. But notice that there's a reference back to the first plague. The striking of the Nile. And what happened as a result of that plague? The water of the Nile was undrinkable. Of course, here, Israel's dilemma is they don't have any water at all. But but just appreciate the details that are given. Also, this is a public event. Moses is to do this before the face of the people. He's to do it in plain sight. But what's the significance of taking the elders with him? What does that indicate? Well, what role do elders serve in the Old Testament? Well, in the next chapter, Jethro helps Moses further establish Presbyterianism for Israel. You know, a presbyter is an elder. Uh, but the elders acted as judges. You know, they sat in the gates of the city and heard cases and rendered judgments. Now, remember back in verse 2 that the word for quarrel or contend has legal or courtroom connotations. And so what we have taking place at the rock is a trial of sorts. And the elders are there not only to witness what happens, but to act as judges after a fashion. And who is on trial? Yahweh's on trial. He's the one being tested. He's the one against whom the accusations have ultimately come. Which brings us to verse 6, which is truly profound in truth and imagery, in the imagery it portrays. As Yahweh says to Moses, Behold, I am standing before your face there upon the rock at Horeb, and ye will strike the rock, and shall come out from it water, and the people may drink. And Moses did thus before the eyes of the elders of Israel. Now, truth be told, during my study last week, when I came to this verse, it hit me in such a way as if I'd never read it before. You know, I looked at the details and wondered, how had I never noticed some of them before? And I imagine you've had a similar experience in your own reading and studying the Scriptures from time to time, where the, you know, the Holy Spirit gives you insight that you see something that, that's plainly there in the text that you hadn't seen before. Well, you're given new light. Well, perhaps some of you have already had this light for Exodus 7, 17, verse 6, but allow me to help you see it just in case you haven't. First of all, Yahweh says that he's standing before Moses upon the rock in or at Horeb. What is Horeb? Well, it's another name for Sinai. And we should probably understand that Israel isn't at the mountain itself yet, since they're recorded as moving there in chapter 19, but that they're likely near it. And that Horeb can refer to the region in which the mountain is also found. Nevertheless, the seemingly sudden mention of Horeb acts as a clue to us as the reader that details, uh, and that detail should cause us to sit up and take notice. See, this is the only, this is only the second time Horeb's been mentioned so far in Exodus. When was the first? Chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now this, of course, is the beginning of Moses' encounter with Yahweh at the burning bush. So Moses is back in familiar territory. He knows this area. Second, Yahweh says that he's standing on the rock. How should we understand that? In what way would Yahweh be standing on the rock? You know, does he make an appearance here in the form of the angel of Yahweh? No, but, but Yahweh is present via the pillar of cloud. And so we should likely picture the cloud as settling over or on, uh, on top of this rock. 
interestingly enough, there uh, a split rock has been found in Western Arabia, not too far from a uh, proposed location for Sinai. Uh, it's an incredibly arid region of the world, but the granite rock shows significant signs of water erosion, uh, not the typical erosion that comes with wind. And the rock is about four stories high. It's a, it's a monolith that sits prominently on a hill. Now, uh, we don't need this information to prove the point, but let's think about the imagery here, particularly in light of what Asaph, Asaph declares in Psalm 78 when recounting this event. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Now, what does this describe? Now, should you imagine a little stream of water trickling out of a rock so that a couple of million people and their livestock each have to walk by and take a little sip? I mean, no, that's, that's completely impractical. Rather, you should imagine perhaps a geyser of water bursting forth. And what direction does water run? Downhill, because of gravity. Which means what? The water was coming from a higher point. So let's put some of these pieces together. Remember, what does Rephidim mean? Plain. Plains are flat. And so what we have here is an elevation where this rock is found and the water flows down from it like rivers, creating a freshwater lake below in order for the people to come and drink from it, etc. Now, it's a bit hypothetical, but it also makes a lot of common sense given the biblical data that's here. Also, you've got an elevated rock, a mini mountain, and you've got the clouds settling over it, standing over it which we'll see again in just a few chapters at Sinai when God's glory presence settles on the top of Sinai. See, we have a preview of that here. But where else does the imagery of rivers coming down from mountains also appear? Well, two instances immediately come to mind. The first is in Genesis 2, with the four rivers flowing from Eden. And what was in Eden? The Garden of Eden, the mountain sanctuary. And again, water flows downhill, so that tells us that this was a mountain. But another significant instance of this imagery is the river flowing out of the temple that we find in Ezekiel 47, which ultimately points forward to the Holy Spirit and to the church flowing out to the nations. So rivers flowing down from the mountain is part of what we should see here. But perhaps even more significantly, what's pictured here in verse 6 when we look at it again? Yahweh tells Moses, I'm standing on the rock. And then what's... Moses supposed to do? Strike the rock. Which means what? That he's striking Yahweh. See, God is willing to be struck to provide for his people. He takes the hit. He takes the blow. And perhaps we're to understand that as Moses strikes the rock, his staff passes through the cloud, also striking it. But surely our thoughts should immediately jump forward to the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, where he takes the blow for his chosen people. See, Yahweh equals the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ. And where is Jesus crucified? On Golgotha, which was what? A hill. And what is something John is specific to record in chapter 19 of his gospel that the other three don't? That upon finding Jesus already dead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The blood makes sense, medically speaking, but not the water. But both are significant considering the theology of John's gospel. Recall Jesus' teaching in John 7. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for it was not yet Spirit, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Water equals life, especially in the wilderness. But who is the Lord and giver of life? The Holy Spirit. So more, what does Jesus teach the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4? Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Consider when you read Exodus 17.6 that you should see Jesus. And this isn't to stretch the text or to read too much into the text, but really to simply follow Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 10, where he clearly states of our fathers in the wilderness, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Jesus is the rock. Yahweh is the rock. And the staff of Moses, the rod that was used to bring judgment upon Egypt, Yahweh now says it's to be used to bring judgment upon him. What's, what's going on here? Well, Yahweh is acting as the substitute. This is judicial theology. This is substitutionary atonement. And the elders are there to bear witness of this fact, of this act that Yahweh commands. Yahweh takes the hit and gives His people life. And this is simply a remarkable testimony to the character of our God. And surely it affirms that the God of the Bible is one, And that we dare not fall into the Marcionite heresy of thinking of the God of the Old Testament is all wrath and judgment, but the God of the New Testament is all love and grace. No, a thousand times, no. Uh, And doesn't this text help us all the more understand Jesus' conversation with the Emmaus disciples when he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Well, back to our text in Exodus 17 for just a few moments more. Now, what's something recorded for us in this final verse? Or what's, you know, what's what's not recorded between verses 6 and 7? Moses actually doing this and how the people reacted. We're not given that information. But we read it as though it happened, which, of course, it did. And we might think that verse 7 causes the account to end on a bit of a sour note. And he called the name of the place Massa, test, and Meribah, quarrel, contention, on account of the contention of the sons of Israel, and on account of their testing Yahweh, saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? Now, you notice that this ties uh, the whole story of verses 2 through 7 as a chiasm as well, since in verse 2 the themes of contending and testing are introduced and then they're returned to here. And then verse 7 itself is chiastic with the word order, testing, contending, contending, testing. And again, these things aren't accidental. But then notice what extra bit of information about Israel's testing that we are, we are given that wasn't given earlier. What does the test have to do with? What's the, what are the people thinking? Is Yahweh among us or not? Well, what are they doing? They're doubting Yahweh's presence, challenging whether or not Yahweh is Emmanuel, God with us. And of course, the answer to their question is yes, and profoundly so. Yahweh is among them, and so much so that he's willing to take the herd in order to provide for a 
distrusting even rebellious people. Now granted, Israel's still in boot camp and Yahweh is exercising a great deal of patience with them, but their testing of Yahweh is no small matter and arguably satanic. You know, in, in his second test uh, of Jesus, when Satan would have him throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, quoting from Psalm 91 while doing so, how does Jesus respond? Again, it is written, you shall not put Yahweh your God to the test. See, here Jesus quotes the first part of Deuteronomy 6.16. What's the rest of the verse say? As you did at Massa, at testing. Now, of course, the Israel of Jesus' day put Jesus to the test, particularly the leaders, the elders, the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus, who is Emmanuel, will end up on the cross to take the blow, to take the strike that we deserve. And what's one of the few things that Jesus utters while on the cross? I thirst. You can consider Jesus thirsted on the cross that we might have his water which flowed with his blood from his open side. Here, Israel, though not officially the bride yet, uh, nevertheless has failed another test. But Yahweh takes her place and provides for her. And for the rest of Exodus, we don't read any more uh, about issues with water because Israel now has water in the wilderness. And they don't go very far from this position for over a year while they're at Sinai. And certainly the double names that Moses gives serves as a warning and reminder, even as so many other places in Scripture recount this event as rebellion, particularly Psalm 95, which is then quoted in Hebrews 3 and 4. And we should take stock and consider that neither should we put the Lord to the test, doubting His presence or His promises, nor should we, as did Satan, twist God's word to justify ourselves in our sin or the sin we want to pursue. But still more, we must see in Yahweh's example at the rock, in Jesus' own example upon the cross, that it was through the judgment rendered that the water flowed out, that, that life was given. And if this is true of Jesus, then in what way is it also true of us? Well, in Hebrews 5.8, we're told that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered, through what he suffered. And surely if that was true of him, then it's all the more true of us. And that when we encounter suffering, whether in judgment on account of our sin or on account of our Heavenly Father's discipline to train us, let us faithfully consider it as a reminder, as a renewal to, uh, as a renewed call to obedience, and that it would yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. See, there's, there's purpose to it. God doesn't smash us just to smash us. He doesn't bring difficulty in trial because he gets some sort of sadistic pleasure in doing so. Not at all. Rather, it's for our growth, for our maturity, to become all the more like Jesus, our Savior and King, the trailblazer and terminator of faith, who has gone before us and bids us to follow him. It's for the purpose that we might continue to run with endurance the race that is set before us. The race that is the Christian life. And maybe, just maybe, you need that reminder today because, well, you're tired and you're weary. Maybe even discouraged. And all that you can see before you right now is more of the same, whatever that may be. And you might be wondering, can I keep going? I'm not sure that I can, especially if nothing changes. Well, even at the prospect of nothing changing, 
I hope the resolve of your faith will be that you can keep going, that you can at least take one more step, because that's what your Savior would bid you to do. Still more, and you're looking unto Jesus and you're looking upon Yahweh standing on the rock. You recognize and realize the truth that suffering leads to ministry, that it makes ministry possible. You see, it is often the case that when we're suffering in some form or fashion, that how we endure that suffering, what we say or what others observe while we're going through a hard time is a help to them. And we do well to recognize that our sufferings aren't only for our personal benefit and growth and grace, which they certainly are and can be, but also for the sake of others. Now, we might wish it was otherwise, but this is a biblical reality in which we live, and it's not something that's going to change on this side of glory. This is part and parcel of who we are called to be as followers of Christ. And we do well to recognize as much. Perhaps the clearest application is found this in the opening chapter of Paul's second letter to the, to the Corinthians, where we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolations also abounds. So our consolation also abounds through Christ. See, your trials and your tribulations and your sufferings, they're not just for you, but are also for the sake of others, that you may be able to impart to them comfort, to minister to them in their distresses. Just this past week, I was talking with another pastor who's going through a, a challenging time in the life of his congregation. And at the end of our conversation, I told him, go and give your wife a kiss and know that you're in good company with every faithful minister that's ever served in the church. Now, why did I tell him that? Well, because that's the kind of counsel I've received or heard from other faithful pastors who've endured difficult times uh, and who passed it along to me, who've been through times of seasons of suffering and so forth. Now, of course, that doesn't make the circumstance instantly easier. But surely it helps to give faith some perspective. See, Exodus 17, 1 through 7, really is a gem of the text. And as we find ourselves in this Advent season, this season of preparation, during which we declare and sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, let us consider that He has come, the manner of His coming, and how that informs our ministry to one another as the church and also to the world. And as we await the day when faith will become sight, when Christ returns and sets all things to right at the last, in the meantime, let us be willing to suffer, to take the blow that life might come forth, that refreshing streams might flow from our lives, imparting life to others. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again give you thanks for your word, for how you have promised to use it in our lives and for the sake of your church, for your people. We pray that you would impress it all the more fully upon our hearts, our lives, and our souls, that we may bear fruit to your glory for the furthering of your kingdom to the ends of the earth and grant us faithfulness to continue on. We thank you for your presence in our midst and for the signs of your presence that you give to us each and every week. 
And may we partake of faith now, by faith now, and be directed all the more to Christ our Savior and King, in whose name we pray. Amen.